0: Good afternoon, and it's absolutely lovely to be here.
1: I am going to be talking about how to stay healthy, um, and I've actually been on a bit of a tour uh, doing I'm um, talking about the blood sugar diet, which I'll also mention. Now, curiously, I was in Brisbane a couple of days ago, and I was flying back, and uh, this is what we're offered for breakfast. <laughs> and uh, if you look at that, what's really curious about it is sort of healthy breakfast, allegedly. You look at the yoghurt, and I had a look at the back. That is low-fat, it is low gluten, and, of course, it is high sugar. Uh, there is about the equivalent of four teaspoons of sugar in it. Cranberries, you're thinking those are healthy. Actually, they've covered them with sugar as well, and there's the equivalent of six teaspoons of sugar on that. The granola, two teaspoons of sugar, and the orange juice, around nine teaspoons of sugar. That's just normal orange juice, but it's natural sugar, but still sugar. So that little box of goodies from Qantas is uh, 20 teaspoons of sugar, which is around half a kilo of sugar a week, or oh, 26 kilos of sugar a year, should you fancy travelling on Qantas every morning of the week. <laughs> so um, I'll come back to that in a moment, but uh, let's move on. I trained at Royal Free Hospital in London with Claire, and on the first day, in fact, there were 100 of us a bit like this, and the dean said that statistically four of us would marry, and Claire was in that room that day. Lucky. <laughs> La- The other thing the Dean said is over the next five years we would learn a huge amount and uh, within five years most of it would be wrong. So it would be a good idea to keep up to date. And what I fear is that a lot of doctors have not kept up to date. Okay, so I joined the BBC and I was a director for many years behind the camera and I directed a number of lovely people. Uh, John Cleese did a series with him called The Human Face. Alice Roberts, you familiar with Alice? Done quite a few series with her. Uh, David Attenborough, did a series of him. Uh, Do you know what the one animal David Attenborough is terrified of? Rats, can't bear them. And talking of rats, I worked with him as well. (laughs) Uh, I have to say, Jeremy is exactly what he's like on uh, screen. Uh, So I've done a lot of things uh, behind the camera and then more recently in front of the camera. Did you ever see this lovely one, Infested? Uh, This was um, when I agreed to swallow tapeworm, sis. Uh, This is me in Kenya. Uh, We had just found a dead cow, as one does, which was infected with tapeworm, beef tapeworm, in its tongue, so chopped off the tongue, cut out three cysts, uh, and I'm about to swallow them. And uh, the agreement with Claire, because she kind of vets these things I do, was we would get rid of it before it hit ten weeks, because after that point, uh, it starts to shed segments. And so you um, run the risk. It crawls out of your bottom, and you might share a bed with one. So I took three, because I had no idea whether I would have um, triplets, twins, singles. And it turned out to be triplets. Three. That's a pill camera shot. Uh, i done it eight weeks. So yes, I've done um, some fairly hardcore things in my time. But the thing I'm best known for is the fast diet, otherwise known as a 5-2 diet. And if you're wondering if it works, that was me before. That's me now. <laughs> so clearly, all the proof you need. Around the time that I wrote The 5-2 Diet, which was actually in 2012, um, I came across this paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is Myths, Presumptions, and Facts About Obesity. And it's written by the US's foremost obesity specialist. So I thought I'd kind of run through a few myths facts, and let's have a bit of a game. Okay, best to lose weight gradually. Is that a myth, a fact, or a presumption? Let's go for myth. Let's go for Fact. And let's go for presumption. Okay, that is a myth. Uh, It's a very well-established myth, but it turns out that pretty well every study they've ever looked at, great rapid and greater initial weight loss is associated with lower body weight at the end of long-term follow-up, which is surprising, isn't it? big study out of the University of Melbourne about 18 months ago where they took 200 overweight women and randomly allocated them either to rapid weight loss. They had to lose 12.5% of their total body weight in around 12 weeks or they had 36 weeks to do it at a rate of about half a kilo a week and what they discovered is the dropout rate in the slow weight loss group was very high 50% of them dropped out before they hit their target whereas 85% of those in the rapid weight loss and when it came to they followed them for two years and when it came to putting on weight it was actually the slow (coughs) group who put on the most weight which is surprising but it's also all about what you do when you've shed the weight in a sense it kind of makes sense because you're thinking you're much more motivated if you lose it fast but the critical thing is how do you lose it and what do you do when you've lost it and i'll come come back to that later so what do we think about this one eating breakfast breakfast is the most important meal of the day surely true true false we're going true false it is false American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, 309 participants. What they did is they got skippers and regular breakfast eaters, and um, they asked them to swap habits for four months. And lo and behold, the people who skipped it and who began eating, they lost 0.75 kilos, pretty good. Except the other way around was pretty well, exactly the same. Uh, Turns out the eat breakfast and breakfast is the most important meal of the day is mainly a slogan of the cereal companies. (laughs) Okay, exercise important for weight loss we well, are going? True? False? Well, you should be up with me. There's another false one. And the problem is that if you're a 65-kilo woman, you're going to have to walk 40 minutes to burn off a banana, uh, 60 minutes for a fruit juice, 80 minutes for a glass of wine, two hours for a bar of chocolate, and a muffin, three hours! So put that muffin down. And if you want to lose half, if you wanna burn through you wanna lose half a kilo of fat, you're gonna to have to run forty-four miles. So you can do it, or you can just put the muffin down. And that is not actually the worst of it. But the problem is as well, because what people do is what's called compensatory eating. Yeah, okay. And compensatory relaxing. Basically you sit on your ass afterwards. <laughs> so we all know that in order to be healthy you need to eat a healthy diet. But what is a healthy diet? Okay, so sugar is the obvious villain. This is the UK, sugar consumption since 1700. Anyone got any idea what happened in 1850? I would be very impressed if you knew. Uh, This is when Gladstone uh, removed the tax on sugar. And it kind of makes the case for a tax on sugar, doesn't it? And the other two dips, basically, are the First and the Second World War. Now, this is correlated against diabetes, but it could have been against obesity. You get exactly the same pattern. And what you see there is rates of type 2 diabetes up from about 1% in the UK when I was born, and now running at 8 to 9%. Gone up nearly tenfold. Same is true in Australia, worse in Vietnam, worse in China, worse in almost any country you can imagine. Right. Now, the average Australian kid consumes their own weight in sugar every year, over 30 kilos. And these are the villains. So I shouldn't have gone through that one so fast. Dwell on this one. Uh, This is obviously Coca Cola, fizzy drinks, and things like that. They are the number one villain. And then we have Cornflakes, number two villain. And anyone know this guy? This is Dr. Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg. 1900s, and Dr. Kellogg basically invents cornflakes for this reason. There is a disease that is sweeping America, affecting young boys and girls. It leads to cancer of the womb, urinary disease, impotence, epilepsy, insanity, and death. The victim literally dies by his own hand. Do you know what he's talking about? Masturbation. masturbation. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> the reason Dr. Kellogg invents cornflakes is because he's worried about masturbation. And he thinks quite rightly that cornflakes are going to basically undermine the health of the youth. And, uh, yeah, and he was, um, this time when there's a lot of conversation about, you know, child abuse, uh, Dr. Kellogg was very, very fond of advocating circumcision for boys and girls to stop them doing it. He actually broke with his brother because his brother basically said, look, this stuff tastes like absolute, you know, rubbish. It tastes like cardboard. It tastes worse than cardboard. We've got to pump it full of sugar. And Dr. Kellogg, bless him, said no. So his brother went off and founded the Kellogg's empire. And as you're well aware, a lot of um, cereals now have 30, 40, 50% sugar. And they have continued the very fine tradition uh, of Dr. Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg was also fond of yogurt now for breakfast. Now I'm a fan of yogurt, particularly full fat yogurt for breakfast, but not the way Dr. Kellogg administered it, (laughs) rectally. He believed in um, yogurt enemas. A couple of pints of yogurt first thing in the morning, get you going. He was kind of ahead of his time uh, in the sense that he recognized the microbiome, gut bacteria was a good thing, uh, but not by that delivery system. Uh, here's another villain for you, if you like, uh, Dr. Ansel Keys. Are you familiar with him? Dr. Ansel Keys is a physiologist beginning in the 1950s uh, and culminating really in the 1980s. He convinced the American government and then the world that basically fat was the villain. Fat is what makes us fat. Fat is what clogs up your arteries and gives you heart disease. Unfortunately, what then happened, obviously, is that people kind of believed that if you... The manufacturers basically went crazy for low-fat products, and they stuffed them full of sugar instead. So if you took a Starbucks muffin, low-fat version, it actually has 10% more calories than the normal version. But because it says low-fat, people thought it wouldn't make them fat. So what happened in 1980, which is when I and Claire went to medical school, is the world was swamped by the low-fat message. And unfortunately, it not only kind of um, undermined the health, if you like, of the US, but much of the rest of the world. So Coca-Cola are obviously spreading their message as we go now. Uh, They've kind of done the developed world. They're now moving on, I think, to Africa and things like that. The sugar industry is very much like the tobacco industry. They know they've lost the fight, but they're going to go on fighting it. So um, what happened is fat, fat was bad for you. Fat was going to kill you. uh, But was that really true? Well, there have been a number of really big studies. This one here, for example, the Women's Health Initiative Dieting Modification Trial, part of a bigger trial which cost $600 million, uh, over half a billion US dollars. One of the biggest trials ever done and really important. And it started in 1992, 49,000 women who were randomly allocated to low fat or to continue as normal. And they were followed for eight years. So this was a big trial, randomized, all gold standard things, very good trial. In the group who were going low-fat, their fat consumption fell from 39 to 29%, went down by a quarter. This is really big numbers, very, very impressive. And at the end of eight years, the weight difference was 0.4 of a kilo between the two groups. Eight years of being on a low-fat diet, that's the result. And the important measures were things like heart disease, stroke, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, made no difference at all, none. And they've done other big studies. No low-fat diet, I'm aware of, that has been part of a randomized controlled trial has ever made a significant difference to any of the things they promised they would. Let me tell you about this one. Anyone heard of the PREDIMED study? This is, in many ways, an even more important study done in Spain. Just over 7,000 Spaniards randomly allocated to a low-fat or a Mediterranean diet. And both groups were encouraged to eat more fruit and veg and cut down on sugary snacks. Kind of standard advice. And the low-fat group were encouraged to eat plenty of bread, pasta, potatoes, keep oil to a minimum, eat low-fat dairy and lean fish. You know, the standard low... That sounds pretty standard, doesn't it? The Mediterranean diet basically uh, encouraged to eat plenty of eggs, nuts, oily fish, Uh, add lots of olive oil. They were not calorie-controlled in any way. You know, cook with it, glug with it, stick it on your salad, do whatever you want with it. They're also encouraged to eat dark chocolate in the evening, not huge amounts, but bits of it, and have a glass of wine with their evening meal. So that's kind of what the Mediterranean diet looks like. It looks nice, doesn't it? <laughs> Thinking I could handle that. And so what were the results of PREDIMED? Well, what they found is you were thirty percent less likely to die from a heart or a stroke if you were on the low fat if you were on the Mediterranean than on the low fat diet. Okay? So uh, your risk of becoming diabetic was 50% less if you were on the Mediterranean diet. If you were on the Mediterranean diet and you were supplementing with extra virgin oil, you were nearly 70% less likely to develop breast cancer. Biggest result I've ever seen ever anywhere. A low-fat diet, zero effect on breast cancer. And what you can see here is that there's something about the olive oil, and I think it's something called oleic acid. They're not quite sure. They're doing follow-up studies. This was a paper published about two months ago. Uh, because what's happening is the trial, which began in '92, is still running. They're just still getting new information out of it. And uh, they also did lots of brain tests on the memory test. And they found if you were on the Mediterranean diet, uh, you're much less likely to develop dementia. And also, you're much less likely to um, have memory problems. And um, all this stuff, and also how to Mediterraneanize your diet, is in my new book. Uh, you know, I might as well plug it here. Uh, LAUGHTER Uh, which is the blood sugar diet, because I think Mediterranean diet is absolutely the heart of everything I'm talking about now. Uh, Everybody agrees. Dietitians agree. Pretty well everyone agrees. They may not wholly agree about what the Mediterranean diet is, uh, and I'll go on to that, but um, you can quite simply make your uh, diet far more Mediterranean, if you like. But go and Google Predimed, and what is fantastic is they they give you exactly what happened. And it it has lots of just other things, like they encourage them to, uh, you know every meal should be eaten in a chair, you know, behind a table, uh, that never eat a meal standing up. Never eat a meal you can hold in one hand, you know, there are certain rules. Okay, so the NHS, God bless them, uh, they basically have a section you go to and it says, what is a Mediterranean diet? And they describe this. This apparently is a Mediterranean diet. If you look at it and read it carefully, it is actually indistinguishable from a low-fat diet. In fact, it is a low-fat diet. There is nothing in there about any of the constituents of the PREDIMED study. They say the PREDIMED study is brilliant. They say the, they describe the details in great detail. And then they produce this thing, which is called the eat well plate, which um, we talk of as the eat very badly plate. And uh, it is, there is a sort of dissonance. There is a complete misconnect between what the evidence shows and what government bodies show. And if you go and look at the Australian version of this, it's exactly the same. Nothing has changed. It's like 20 years of research have come and gone. The Pretty med study has come and gone. The Women's Health Initiative. I could cite you another dozen studies. And it's like nothing has changed. And I find that really, really odd. And if you go to the diabetes website, you get the same sort of thing. Low-fat diet. Uh, and yet, when you talk to them, everybody goes Mediterranean diet. Yeah, it's the way to go. We all recognize that. Blah, 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 blah. But that's not what they say. And I find that odd. Anyway... Um, I got interested in diabetes and type 2 diabetes because in 2012, I discovered I was a type 2 diabetic. And uh, I'd been on low-fat diets, all sorts of things. None of them ever worked. My dad died of type 2 diabetes-related illnesses. So uh, I went to see my GP. She said, go on a low-fat diet you know. I said, and start on medication. I said, no, thank you. Uh, and I got hold of a whole bunch of um, our researchers, and they went off and they found out about intermittent fasting. Anyone see this one, Eat Fast, Live Longer? So this was kind of inspired as, well, that's my guts. Well, that's a, a scan. That white stuff is fat, because I was what's called a toffee, thin on the outside, fat inside. And it's really the fat that's kind of lining my liver and my pancreas that's causing the problems. And here's Dr. Chris Varady, who's one of my um, experts at WENCSE. She does some um, research into what's called alternate day fasting, where basically you cut your calories every other day uh, by about a quarter. So that's around five or 600 calories every other day. Uh, I tried it, and I found it quite tricky, so um, I went for two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and this is my thing. A 5-2 fast diet, 600 calories twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, at least in part because the Prophet Muhammad recommended Mondays and Thursdays, and I thought, I'll get the Muslims to buy my book, if nothing else. I have to say, all the great religions have advocated fasting. Um, So that was me beforehand. Uh, I was 85 kilos, not hugely overweight, body fat 28%, and my blood glucose 7.3, which puts me in the uh, diabetic range. And IGF-1 is a measure of cancer risk, uh, right at the top. And that's me after about 8 to 10 weeks. I've lost 9 kilos. Body fat down 21%, waist down 32 inches, and best of all, fasting glucose down to 5.4, which is normal, which is where I've stayed, and my cancer risk has approximately halved. So that was four years ago. I'm still the same weight, uh, and my blood glucose is the same. So there we go. Grateful patient, grateful patient, sorry, a lady who sent me um, uh, photos. I, I have a website. Uh, which is called bloodsugardiet.com and it's a great sort of community. People send me stuff, I send them stuff, recipes, lots of Australians on it, do, do come and join in. All right, this was another study, uh, 115 women randomly allocated to either, in this case, a 1,500 calorie Mediterranean diet or the 5-2 method. So in a way this is Mediterranean against Mediterranean. Uh, and what they found after four months, uh, you were twice as likely to be on the 5:2, twice as much fat loss, Insulin resistance significantly better, and inflammatory factors also better. And this is important. The last two are important because the woman running the study, Dr. Michelle Harvey, uh, her interest is breast cancer risk, and insulin and inflammation are both significant drivers of breast cancer risk. So, try um, just get some water. So, this is a guy called Roy Taylor, and he's kind of, if you like, the hero of my current book. Because one I'm kind of a bit obsessed about at the moment, as I said, is type 2 diabetes and also insulin resistance and uh, high blood sugar levels. Because around, uh, depending on which statistics you use, but around a third to half of the adult Australian population have uh, elevated blood sugar levels in either the pre-diabetic or the diabetic phase. And the older you get, the more likely you are to develop it. So around 20% of uh, Australians over the age of 60 are currently diabetic, and the figures are probably actually bigger than that. Uh, But um, the official figures underestimate. Okay. And what he recognised is the problems in the fat infiltrating the liver and the pancreas. And uh, he created this diet, 800 calories a day, for 8 to 12 weeks, told it will never work. Uh, But actually, what he's found, eight weeks, average weight loss, 15 kilos. And if you have been diabetic for less than four years, you get 87% reversal, longer than it's 50%. That's still pretty good. And uh, big changes are in liver fat. And here's Elizabeth before and after. She was uh, a type 2 diabetic, uh, has gone down from size 22 to size 12. And this is Cassie, who's a 26-year-old. She developed um, diabetes during her first pregnancy, and she developed... Uh, polycystic ovary syndrome which is very common obviously Uh, she uh, went on 800 calorie diet reversed it and I'm glad to say she's now pregnant with twins and so that's kind of the book and uh, other important ingredients uh, which I could talk about but I'm kind of running out of time I suspect are exercise which is really about aerobic fitness and strength because uh, the way I see kind of diet and that sort of thing is it's all about the combinations and getting combinations right and the other is stress reduction and there I'm a big fan of mindfulness. So I kind of write about these things, but I also, as I said, um, important thing is to stand up about every 20 minutes. So I think you should all stand up. So I've been talking for about And you can sit down again. Marvellous. Does that feel better? Does that feel better? Does that feel worse? Because uh, the chair really is kind of a killer. Uh, because we talk about exercise, but the bare minimum we should do, I mean, how many of you can spend sedentary jobs where, or things where you spend a lot of time sitting? An awful lot of time sitting. Uh, there's been some brilliant studies out of Australia where they do things like they make people sit down for nine, ten hours at a time and feed them regular meals, and then they measure their blood glucose levels, their fat levels, and things like that. And what happens is basically it's You know, it's like you put stuff in the pipes and it just hangs around. It sort of sludges everything up. Uh, It takes much longer for your body to clear uh, food uh, if you're sitting down. But if you're kind of standing up and walking and kind of doing stuff, then what happens is it activates these enzymes called lipoprotein lipase. And what they do is they kind of just suck the fat and sugar out of your blood. And uh, that's why I'm a big fan of water, because if nothing else, you're going to go to loo a lot more. Actually, I think water is brilliant, particularly if you're doing something like any form of um, calorie restriction diet, then it's important to drink lots of water because you're going to be losing a lot of fluid. I mean, that's why all those sort of slightly crazy diets, the juicing diets, basically, which claim you can lose, you know, however many pounds it is in seven days, a lot of it is water. And indeed, if you're doing the sort of, you know, 800 calorie diet, you're going to see very impressive weight loss at the beginning, but much of it is going to be water. So you just need to kind of glug it a lot, otherwise you get constipated, you get headaches, you get things like that so uh, I'm a big fan of water, as I said I'm a big fan of standing and you don't even have to stand for that long, in this particular study they did in Australia, uh, they only stood for about a minute or so, Uh, there's also standing desks which are becoming more fashionable you burn three times more calories standing, if you stand for about three hours a day, five days a week, that's the equivalent of about 14 marathons a year in terms of the amount of um, stuff you burn and then there's kind of walking walking jolly good for you uh, but ideally you want to kind of put in a burst. You know, if you're going to walk, it's not just kind of, you know, like that. It's basically going to, you know, <laughs> going backwards. It's just kind of being a bit active. And that, again, is good. It's the intermittent nature of the thing. And um, if you're a bit more hardcore, I want to see a film I did called The Truth About Exercise. So this is actually about HIT, which is high-intensity training, uh, and uh, this is very, very short burst, but quite intense. And here's me on an exercise bike. And uh, this is the inspiration uh, behind it, Professor Jamie Timmons. And this is my three-minute exercise regime. It's Actually, to be honest, it's five minutes, but hey. Uh, so I get on the exercise back. I warm up for about a minute, maybe less. Then I go like crazy against resistance for 20 seconds. And it needs to be kind of enough so that at the end of 20 seconds, you really don't feel like you're going to be able to go much further. Then your heart rate is probably up to 160, 170 by this point. Uh, you let it drop until it's about 120. And that's normally about a minute. And then you do it again. Breather. Then you do it again. Then you collapse. This is... <laughs> It's quite knackering, but if was—if you're not used to exercise, uh, then I would just do the first one 10 seconds, uh, but, um, because it is quite hardcore. Uh, again, I kind of write about it and all the kind of science about it, and again, website if you want to find out more. Uh, but this is am- amazingly effective in a short period of time. Uh, I do this about three times a week. And uh, it increases what's called your aerobic fitness, your heart and lungs, by around 10%, uh, which is not what you're going to get from jogging. I see a lot of people jogging, and I want to say to them, sprint. Because actually, jogging is fine. Jogging is not terribly good for actually doing the things you want to do. And the things you really want out of exercise... There are lots of things you get out of exercise, you know, being out in fresh air. But the things you really want to do is you want to increase your aerobic fitness, your heart and lungs. And the other thing you want to improve is your insulin sensitivity. And neither of these things do you get from low-intensity exercise. It has to be intense. So, uh, as I said, uh, six weeks of doing it uh, initially one and then building up three times a week. And those are the sort of um, figures you get. And also the good thing about it is it suppresses appetite. So again, as far as I know, it's the only form of exercise that has actually been shown to be associated in the long term with a- uh, weight loss. Uh, the big study again out of um, Melbourne, which demonstrated this a couple of years ago. So uh, lots of other reasons for doing exercise, whatever form of exercise you want to do. Uh, but these are, if you want health, then these are kind of the two drivers. And then there's jolly old strength exercises. Are you familiar with all of these? You know they are the classic ones, aren't they? So um, I and Claire do them first thing in the morning. We roll out of bed. You have to kind of find the time when you're actually going to do them because that's the, the, any habit, you've just got to do it. So our rule is, we, you know, you do whoa, that sort of stuff. It's actually... And you do about 30 seconds of them the plank, you can probably recognize. They're the standard exercises, you're just doing them. But the strength, you're using your own weight to build up muscle. And it is, you know, it is absolutely essential, particularly as you get older, that you do this form of exercise. And you can do it in less than three or four minutes, honestly. Uh, a lot of research in this area, but that's what I would absolutely advocate. So, uh, and the final thing is mindfulness. Anyone here practice mindfulness? Anyone? So um, I had, a, again, a Horizon, I think, which went out about a week ago on the ABC, in which starts with me um, doing karaoke singing very badly. Anyone want to see that one? Uh, and uh, that was really about the kind of, if you like, the pursuit. I'm, I'm actually a very high-stress individual, um, so uh, I wanted to find something that would help me sleep better and would actually kind of calm things down. And one of the things I discovered there was mindfulness. And this is kind of an ancient uh, Tibetan and Buddhist idea, and, but it's obviously been refined into something you can do in 10 minutes rather than going off to a, some you know, monastery and hanging around for six years uh, because nobody's going to do that. Um, so there's kind of apps you can get for it, but essentially it's just taking time out of your day, and it is literally 10 minutes in which you kind of sit and you try not to think about all the things you normally think about and dash around and all that sort of stuff. Uh, There is a a mindfulness exercise they do with a bit of chocolate. You put a bit of chocolate on your tongue and you try and keep it there for 10 minutes. You just kind of savour it. And mindfulness is all about trying to get reconnected to your body. So there are also moments in the day. For example, you know, you sit and you look at the, the sunset, the gorgeous sunset over Sydney Harbour and instead of, you know, glugging your cappuccino and things like that, you just sit and you just look at it. And you just feel the sun on your face. You're conscious of the sensations. And that's kind of what mindfulness is about. It's about small moments. Um, I write about it in the book, but as I said, there are some fantastic uh, apps out there. Um, And I know one called Headspace. The initial app is free, the 10 minutes, and then they obviously sell you something else. But frankly, the 10-minute one is absolutely fine. Or you go and join a group. Because I think all these things are generally better in groups. I think, you know, if you want to lose weight, join a group. If you want to, uh, That's why I've created an online community. And they are just wonderful. They're full of incredible supportive people who've kind of been there and are non-judgmental. And uh, I just find that utterly wonderful, I must admit. The sort of stuff that comes back. Uh, and that is, I guess, the joy of writing a book but also having a website. Is the two kind of talk to each other and uh, when you do a book, it kind of goes out there into the ether, and otherwise you never really hear very much about how people get on. But if you have a website, you know, endless information coming back and uh, hugely interesting conversations. Anyway, so uh, that's mindfulness, and... Uh, whoa. Is there anything else? Maybe that's the last one. No, I'm pressing the wrong button. And occasionally, of course, you have to give temptation, don't you? You have to. Uh, I can kind of talk a bit more about it, but um, I'm a chocoholic. Claire isn't, so Claire hides all the chocolate in the house, and my uh, daughter has never forgiven me for eating her chocolate Easter egg. <laughs> it was that bad. So that's kind of, um, that's kind of it for now. Thank you.
0: Hello. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Dr Bailey. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. That was really interesting. So I was going to ask Michael just a few questions, and then hand over to you, the audience, would be really interested to hear what you'd like to ask as well. Um, So that's, uh, you know, game-changing, interesting stuff. Why hasn't it happened yet? Because the evidence has been out there for some time.
1: I don't know. I'm genuinely puzzled. I mean, I don't understand why. Uh, I think it will change. I think stuff is happening under the surface. I think everybody recognises things like the Mediterranean diet are an effective way to go. I mean, I'm sort of passionate about the studies, the science and things like that. So I'm sort of optimistic that slowly things move. I mean, most of you know about Mediterranean diet, don't you? Yeah? Do you think you honestly know what is in a Mediterranean diet, though? Because the trouble is most people think pizza and pasta, and I'm afraid no, <laughs> it's not. It's not what, it's, it may be what the people of the Mediterranean eat now, and that may explain why they've got also soaring rates of diabetes, but it's not what they used to eat. And that's, I guess, what's great about studies like the PREDIMED study, is they really sit down in detail and write exactly what was in it and what was not in it. Um, And the other thing was that people were twice as likely to stick to the Mediterranean diet as they were to low-fat diet, because it's just a lot nicer. Uh, Another important component is the protein, because uh, I was talking to a prof... Um, yesterday, we were sailing in Sydney Harbour, which was absolutely lovely, and he was saying that one of the problems is that the amount of good quality protein in the diet is going down, and that actually protein is one of the signals that keeps you full. I'm not a fan of paleo, but there is something in that, you know, so when you're talking about protein, you're talking about good quality protein, which is sort of fish, oily fish, you can also get very good protein in the form, obviously, of nuts, vegetarian options and things like that but it's about the protein, it's about vegetables, it's about retraining your taste. And as I said, olive oil turns out to be the wonder substance. And uh, I'm not, you know, I haven't got shares in olive oil companies or anything like that. Uh, But I think the science is there. It's just going to take quite a long time to kind of translate.
0: My chance to ask you about chocolate. (laughs) Yeah. I've watched my, uh, any chocoholics uh, here, anyone uh, else yeah. here? Yeah, blame. So you've been good company. Yeah. I've watched Michael eating chocolate where he kind of looks the other direction and sort of slips the chocolates inside My the chocolate fire. eating
1: technique. I'm not eating <laughs> it. <honestly. laughs> it's not me. I can't see myself eating it, therefore it's not happening.
0: So how do you, what is it about chocolate? Uh, it's the combination of the fat and
1: sugar. That's the thing is, it's not just sugar, is it? It's the combination. Uh, there was a horizon, I don't know if you saw it, the Van Tilken brothers, fat versus sugar. And in the end, it's the, I'm not going to go and eat a bowl sh- full of sugar. And you know, I'm not going to start dipping into that. Well, not unless I'm really desperate. Uh, I'm not going to drink a pint of cream, but you kind of mix them together, you whip them up, you stick in the freezer, and then you can really spoon the stuff in, can't you? It's ice cream. And the same is true of um, chocolate. There is something about that wonderful manufactured combination, and you know it's manufactured. You know all these foods have been carefully created so that you will endlessly eat more and more and more of them. That's kind of, you know, even the crisp, they've worked out how the crunch is going to make you eat more. Uh, They have really manufactured these things to the nth degree, so you will not stop. So the only way I can deal with chocolate is by giving it to Claire. And, she, and she, doesn't, she really doesn't care. She can put it in the cupboard and forget about it. I put it in the cupboard and I just think about it. <laughs> and so the only way it works in our household is we just clear it out. The, the breakfast cereals go, the chocolate goes, the sugary sweets go, the ice cream goes. The kids complain like crazy. Uh, but they kind of come to terms with it. I th- I'm, I'm sure they go out. And my daughter, who's 16, kind of loves to taunt us by bringing up Mars bars and things and going, you know, <laughs> in the way that 16-year-olds do. But she can kind of... She can live with it, she's you know, got the metabolism for it, but uh, I think the willpower is grossly overrated. I think it's about creating the physical environment mm-hmm. uh, in which you are not going to be tempted.
0: There was that interesting research about cereal packets. That
1: yeah, they did something in Cornell University where they went round and they photographed uh, you know, several hundred households and they found that if there was cereal on the surface as opposed to fruit, then on average people were four kilos heavier. It's all about the stuff you see, and if you think the cereal is good for you, then you also believe in Santa Claus. (laughs) Except I guess some cereals are better than others. Porridge is good for you, but most of the others, frankly, you know, you look at the sugar, you know what's in them.
0: What about a few more myths? Things like um, dietitians have spoken to me and said, oh, what about starvation mode if if you're doing fasting? I, I must admit, I, I, I do sometimes find
1: myself throwing things at um, the radio because the great thing about dietitians like doctors, is that many of them are well out of date uh, with mm. what the actual science says. So they're quite happy to condemn all sorts of things without actually knowing anything about it. Um, so for a long time, obviously, eggs were demonised, saturated fats demonised. You know, not all saturated fat is likely to be good. Dairy, I think, broadly is in the okay category. Clearly, meat pies are not. You know, I'm not advocating you go and stuff yourself full of saturated fat after this. But dairy products on the whole are quite healthy. Uh, but one of the other great myths is the idea of um, starvation mode. Are you familiar with starvation mode? Basically, when you stop eating, your body, your metabolism slows down. So people come and talk about that whenever I talk about 5-2 dieting, they go, ooh, you know, starvation mode. Actually, uh, the studies have shown they got 20 volunteers, stuck them in a metabolic chamber so they could measure their metabolism, uh, put them on a low-calorie car- low diet, for seven days, and their metabolic rate went up. Because what happens, uh, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, is if you're in a cave, there's no food around, then you've got to get up, you've got to be active, you've got to go out there, you've got to be clever, you've got to seek food. And it's only when you have been without food for months on end, when your body fat sinks to about 8 to 10%, then your body basically goes, there's obviously no food around, we are in a starvation situation, I will go into starvation mode. It happens uh, after substantial, substantial uh, fat loss. Uh, obviously, also, when you lose weight, your, me- your metabolic rate will slow down simply because you are no longer carrying the equivalent of, say, a heavy, you know, heavy suitcase around with you all the time. Uh, but uh, starvation mode is an utter myth. I, I
0: understand Countdown to Life went out recently. Is that right?
1: Anyone see Countdown to Life, ABC? It was basically yes. a, a series about... Oh, a few. It was about... Yes. Um, uh, basically life in the womb and kind of what happens over nine m- months. And one of the things that was really striking to me uh, was um, we went out to the Gambia and uh, looked at a really interesting study there, uh, which was the impact of nutrition in the first few days of conception. And they had two groups, because in the Gambia there's a wet season and a dry season. And during the wet season there's lots of leafy green veg around, And during the dry season, there's actually more calories, mainly starchy yams and kind of grains and things like that. And they've been running a study there for 70 years now, looking at what is the difference if you are conceived in the wet season or conceived during the dry season. It's a fascinating study. And what they found is that if you are conceived in the wet season when your mother has access to plenty of green leafy vegetables, you live on average 10 years longer than if you are conceived in the dry season. It makes that much difference. And they manage to detect the change. It, what happens is certain genes that are associated with your ability to deal with cancer and also your ability to fight infection are either switched on or off in the first hours of conception. Egg, meat, sperm, all of this stuff starts to happen. And it plays out over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, decade. And the other thing we know, which is, I have to say, truly terrifying, and again, why banging bang on about blood sugars, is that the blood sugar levels of a mother Uh, will predict the weight of the child at birth at 3 years, 6 years, 9 years, 21 years. The high blood sugar levels in pregnancy are very negatively correlated with the health of the child later in life. So what we have done, and by we I mean the Americans, is that we have transformed transformed the health of the world in a very, very bad way. So in countries like uh, Vietnam now, uh, rates um, amputation, I was told by a Vietnamese doctor. They're now cutting off more legs uh, than during the height of the Vietnam War because of type 2 diabetes. But it's gone up from 1% to 10%. And in places in the Pacific Islands, it's is much, much worse. And the trouble is, what we've done is we've introduced them to this dreadful, dreadful diet. Uh, around, they're glugging back Coca-Cola, they're glugging back, you know, they're eating all the sugary, carby rubbish, they're eating sort of tinned spam, uh, they're eating all the things that they think is healthy, or at least they like. It's kind of tasty. It's an introduction. And the trouble is it's not only sort of messing up this generation, it's messing up the next generation as well. We're laying a, you know, it's a catastrophe. Uh, the problems of obesity are now bigger than those of, uh, uh, than those of undernourishment worldwide. Uh, China, China, an absolute disaster unless, of course, you're a drug company, in which case, hey, it's fantastic. We've got 100 million diabetics. Whoa. You know, we're going to be selling lots and lots and lots of drugs. Uh, So I guess why I bang on about it because I think it's hugely important and I think there's still an opportunity to change. I think it's a diminishing opportunity. Uh, But I do think, as I said, the people who have been flogging us this rubbish for a long time are kind of beginning to recognise. Rather like the tobacco companies, they're in denial. They're going to fund a lot of research which will tell you that sugary crap is actually quite good for you. Um, uh, but at some point uh, the message will get through and at some point governments will actually spring into action and then they'll just move on to Asia, Africa and places like that. And that, I wish I could be more optimistic, It doesn't sound very happy, does it? But uh, th- that's kind of why I bang on about it. Anyway.
0: Uh, being more optimistic, uh, Cassie's story yep. is a really lovely story because it does illustrate the fact that she managed to come off her medication within a couple of weeks, yep. including the insulin having had gestational diabetes and the dropping her sugar levels and improving her diet seemed to reverse her PCOS. Yep. And she has since remained uh, with her current pregnancy with twins, as, uh, hasn't had gestational diabetes, which Claire's kind
1: of been looking after her, but she contacted us... Um, extraordinary. And I said, look, to be so honest, you're better it off... she's Claire is better doctor <laughs> than I am. And she kind of deals with patients more of the time, whereas I'm kind of more, hey, telly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, So Claire has really been dealing with Cassie, and and Cassie's responded fantastically well, but she was an insulin-dependent diabetic, uh, and fortunately she had a very understanding endocrinologist. So that, yeah, that's the good news. The good news is that it is possible to reverse it, that if you have PCOS, if you have type 2 diabetes, if you simply have elevated blood sugar levels, then you can reverse it, you can, as long as you lose the abdominal fat. Now you can lose the abdominal, the good news is the abdominal fat is the first fat to go if you kind of go on a low-calorie diet or you combine it with exercise, and I guess that's what the book is about. So as I said, 800 calories for eight weeks. Now, some people cannot, will find that tough, though oddly enough, a lot of people find within about a week or so it gets better. This is based on not something I wrote on the back of a cornflake packet, but it's based on the studies of Professor Roy Taylor, who is one of the UK's and Europe's most eminent diabetes specialists. And another good thing is that When patients come and wave the book at their endocrinologist, they go, most of them know Roy Taylor, so instead of going, what is this garbage, who is this loony Michael Mosley, they do at least go, I don't care, he's reputable. Um, So I guess that's the good news. Now another reason I am banging about it. And the thing is, if you are pre-diabetic, which basically means your blood glucose levels are raised, but you're not yet diabetic, uh, if you can lose 10% of your body weight, uh, then you cut the risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 90%. That means, and the problem at the moment, certainly in the UK, is that once you go over the threshold, you become a type 2 diabetic, in theory you are offered advice, dietary advice and exercise, which broadly consists of eat less, run more, uh, next please, Um, and then you're put on medication. And in Claire's practice, for example, uh, that particular area, you are, as a GP, you are paid to put people on medication, you are not paid to help them lose weight. So, uh... And as I said, doctors get no training in nutrition. Uh, when I was in medical school, we learned nothing. Learned anything? No. no. Our son is in medical school, he's learning nothing. Uh, I was talking to mm-hmm. an Australian doctor the other day, and he said he had to look up the word carbohydrate when he read my book, because he realised he didn't even know what carbohydrate was. Um, so, uh, and yet it does not stop you know, doctors administering advice, uh, despite the fact they've had no training in it. Uh, they almost certainly haven't read any of the latest literature. Uh, And I think that should change as well. Uh, Who here thinks that doctors really ought to have some training in uh, nutrition? (laughs) Uh, Don't you find that astonishing? Uh, Basically, you learn about exotica. So you learn about Mm -hmm. kwashioka, you learn about some malnutrition diseases, but you don't learn anything about what happens if you've got a patient in front of you who's overweight and wants your advice. It's probably just as well because they did a survey recently of American cardiologists, and they offered three minutes of advice, and in that three minutes, they got five facts wrong. So maybe it's just as well you don't get the advice.
0: We'd like to have some questions from the audience, and just wonder if if you could come down. There's going to be two microphones, one down on the right side and one on the other side. And just while you're coming down, I'm just going to ask Mike one more question um, about artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners,
1: yeah. Sugars. I've tried every artificial sweetener there is, and I must admit, Uh, anyone got anyone tried stevia? I'm sort of me, uh, anything else, you know, spartamate, all those, mm. uh, I've never quite, I've tried them all, and uh, stevia's sort of okay in fruit things, mm. uh, the only thing, slight problem is there was a study recently, which they fed uh, artificial sweeteners to people uh, who uh, don't normally eat them, and in about half the case, what happens with an artificial sweetener, it kind of obviously goes you know, down there isn't absorbed, but it is absorbed and attacked by the gut bacteria. And unfortunately, it's the gut bacteria that are not terribly good for you, that really enjoy artificial sweeteners. So what they found is that around half the people they fed artificial sweeteners to, it induced a generalized inflammation in the gut and a change in the microbiome. And nobody kind of knows what that means, but I'm guessing it doesn't mean anything good. So I think broadly, if you can kind of reduce your reliance on sweet things, that's got to be a kind of good thing. And personally, I kind of go for fizzy drinks with a bit of, you know, I quite like the fizziness, if nothing else, with a bit of lemon or lime or whatever. And also, it's all about retraining the taste buds. I have to find, I have to say in Australia, uh, I had a croissant, I confess, I had a croissant this morning. It was unbelievably sweet. I don't know if you have higher sugar levels than we do, but it was nauseatingly sweet. i bang on about that. Sorry. But the
0: rest of the food we've had in Australia has been absolutely delicious. It really has. (laughs) Sorry, a diplomatic. Uh, in... Should we, should we move on to the questions, lady? If, if you could, <laughs> if you could keep questions fairly brief, because there's quite a few people like up. Yeah. The so lady down here. Um, I had a cancer diagnosis last year um, and uh, I asked my doctors what I should be eating and they say eat lots of fruit, eat lots of veg and adequate protein. As soon as you go anywhere near the net, there's lots of talk about alkaline diets, there's talk about reducing your sugar as much as you can, cutting dairy and cutting meat often as well. I'm interested in your point of view on all this.
1: Um, I think that... um can I ask you what sort of cancer it was?
0: Uh, apparently too much masturbation. It was um... <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, not, 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 not breast cancer, it was uterine cancer. Okay, that's yep. bad
1: luck, yeah. Um, so it's really, really complicated, uh, is the honest answer to it, that um, the link between diet and uh, cancer is very hard to grasp. Um, yep. As I said, there, there is a strong evidence that insulin is a driver Uh, There is, you know, clearly uh, cutting sugar would probably be a good idea. Dairy, I don't know the data on. Uh, I think that um, there is some evidence, but this is more uh, if you are going through chemotherapy or radiotherapy, that if you fast the day of, the day before and the day after. Because what happens is that when you go into the fasted state, Uh, Your um, your cancer cells continue to, you know, multiply very rapidly, but the rest of your cells multiply less. And so if you're taking chemotherapy, which destroys rapidly dividing cells, then there are some big studies around which appear to demonstrate, at least, you know, in the short term, that people tolerate chemo better uh, if they have fasted before, after and during. Uh, Do you know anything about...
0: I, I mean, I think it's early days in that, yeah. but it, it seems that people then do tolerate higher doses, which is... But
1: general advice Back cancer?
0: I mean, I, alkaline diets I'm, is, is a relatively uh, new area, and yeah. I'm not sure how much research... There would be in that, but I wouldn't discount it. Okay. But I think generally to eat as healthy a diet yeah. as possible is, is wise. I would go for a Mediterranean-style
1: diet. You know, know. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And yes. Mediterranean-style diet, again, there's some good evidence, certainly in animals, yeah. uh, that it's a, a healthy way, um, mm-hmm. again, a good way. Again, in animals, and in animals, in animals, in animals, but in animals they showed that um, intermittent fasting, and fasting in particular, uh, was a powerful way of uh, destroying cancer cells. But I wouldn't promise you that because the human studies have not really been done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but very best of luck. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Should we go to the slide? I just want to say
2: that you are one of my absolute heroes. Yourself and Dr. Ram, Ramjan Chatterjee. Oh, and yes, Tiki indeed. Mm-hmm. I actually studied nutrition. I'm studying nutritional medicine at the moment as well. Just because I am completely disillusioned with mainstream nutrition. And what you showed up there, you know, with the Australian food plate, And the emphasis on low fat and and high sugar is completely something that I believe in. I um, intermittently fast on your advice. My question is, I I have a father who has been diabetic since he was in his 30s. Mm. And I have a mother who's a nurse who feeds him carbs. (laughs) She she cooks, though, so he does eat relatively healthy, but he still eats rice and he loves bread. So here I am, obviously, trying to reduce the amount of carbs, refined carbs that he eats and really focus on the other side. I have a sister who's a doctor who is in my ear basically saying, Mum has looked after our dad for this many years, I should butt out. I've bought your book. I think you writing that book is going to be a game changer. But my question is... For someone who is in his 80s, who's been diabetic since he was in his 30s, is it really possible to reverse that?
1: I think it's unlikely, Frank, at this right, point. Okay. I think he could get other benefits. I don't know if he's got a poor... He porch.
2: does have the, ton- the, the yeah. tummy. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think, um, you know, if he's probably on uh, blood pressure pills, he's probably on cholesterol insulin. pills... He's on insulin, mm-hmm. he's probably on everything, uh, that it will help reduce. I mean, yes. he's 80, you don't want to push no. him. Frankly, if he doesn't want to do it... Yeah you know, he's done well, yeah. but if he does want to do it and he wants to give it a bit of a go... Which he, may, he does. Uh, he may well find that he gets improvement from Excellent. it, and that's all I would do. I'd go gently with him. I wouldn't kind of put him on an 800-calorie diet. I would kind of... <laughs> no. I, I would go <laughs> the, the low-carb med- Mediterranean-style yeah, yeah. version. Excellent. And, and there's, there's a GP in, in the north of England I've been talking to, David Amwin and he's just been introducing this to his patients, and he's already saved $50,000 on his drug budget on his diabetes drug budget just
2: by doing a few very gentle things. As a doctor, thank God for you, because it's because of you that other doctors are are actually taking notes, so thank you. Thank you.
0: The other thing he could do is do some carb swaps, so instead of potatoes, have cauliflower. um, Cauliflower rice is fab. Yes.
1: Spiralising with spiralisers, yes. Yes. Uh, Bread is a hard one. Uh, Rye bread is probably his best bet, really dense. Unfortunately, most brown bread is just white bread dyed and then they add extra sugar to it. I mean, really are, they' are so naughty, those manufacturers
2: <laughs> So naughty lady no over here uh, Thank you um, we 've got a, an argument in our house at the moment um, between olive oil and coconut oil. Um, yeah. A lot of uh, young people, if you go into any health food place it 's just all about coconut oil and i 've been lectured by several of my daughters about how i shouldn 't be eating. Olive oil, I should be having everything is coconut yeah. oil. And I was just wondering of your I'll observations. i show you the
1: studies. Say to them, where are the studies that have There's demonstrated... There's a lot of it on the internet, actually. Okay. No, I mean proper, randomised, yeah, controlled okay. studies. <laughs> I don't mean bollocks studies, you know, the sort of things you read on the internet. Get them to show them off. Well, if you want, if they find them, do send them to me, because I've been having a look and I haven't found them. It may be that coconut oil will turn out to be marvellous, but if you look at the populations like Sri Lanka, where they consume a lot of coconut oil, they have high rates of obesity and very high rates of diabetes. They also
0: consume a lot of rice.
1: They also consume a lot of rice, so it's confounding. But no, uh, get them to, you know, if nothing else, incentivise them to do a bit of science. A okay. uh, randomised controlled trial, that's what I want to see.
0: <laughs>
1: and Thank not you. one that is funded by the coconut oil manufacturer.
0: <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Um, you talked about today having good protein in the diet. Um, I've often thought about going on a vegetarian diet but not being convinced that it's as healthy as having meat or fish in the diet. I was wondering what the current research was in terms of that, if a veg- vegetarian diet can be as healthy as having fish and meat in the diet? Uh,
1: I think so, depending on obviously what you have for the vegetarian diet. Because again, uh, I think that rice cakes are the devil. They're kind of thrown out there as something that's terribly healthy, but actually they're just sugary, sort of ricey things. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately I don't know enough about, you know, vegetarian things. Uh, but without a doubt you can get... Tofu is good stuff, curd is good. Uh, the uh, You know, to be honest... If you could be a pescatarian, is that the right word? Anyway, uh, fish is obviously easier in way of getting good proteins. It could be a shift. The alternative is you could do a sort of 5-2 vegetarian thing where you basically eat meat five days and two days a week, you're a vegetarian because there are lots of kind of moral and ethical reasons for being a vegetarian. Uh, I'm at the moment unconvinced by the data which says that being vegetarian is healthier, healthier than being a meat eater unless you live in America. Because in America, the way the cattle is reared, is full of growth hormone, is pumped full of the most amazing rubbish. Uh, And a lot of the studies which suggest that red meat eating is bad for you are based on American studies, whereas the European studies have broadly suggested that red meat eating, at least in moderate quantities, is fine. And by moderate, I mean a piece of meat which is like the size of your palm, not like the size of two of my hands, you know. (laughs) You're talking four ounces, and I can't even translate that. But, yeah, I mean... I wish I knew more about it, and I vow to go away and learn more about it. You? No, I
0: think it's a reasonable answer. But I
1: think yes. it's an interesting approach. Try a couple of days a week and kind of shift yourself gradually. Thank you.
0: A- and Thank there is you. actually
1: quite a lot of evidence, again, that uh, vegetarian-type proteins can be healthier for you. There's a guy called Volta Longo who bangs on about this in my ear every so often. Uh, yeah. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Can we go over to Lady in White. Hello. I wonder if you'd mind updating us on what the latest science tells us about the link between... Diabetes, ovarian and breast cancer, and the length of lactation.
1: Okay, so I'm not very familiar with lactation. I must admit, I'm afraid. Uh, do you know anything? I know that essentially the links are broadly uh, that central obesity tends to drive increased insulin levels. So what happens is the, the fat kind of permeates your muscles, and then if you particularly if you have a kind of unhealthy carbohydrate diet, which means lots of fizzy, you know, sort of stuff, then Elevated insulin is a driver for breast cancer. It is also a driver for uh, obesity and for diabetes. So, in a sense, insulin is the kind of central mechanism for all of this. Uh, la-
0: Can you tell us I'm about the link? So... with do, do you have some information about the link with the lactation? Do, the only the thing I know there. about... There's fairly evidence, strong evidence, that the more women breastfeed in the length of time the less they're, they're, they're likely to get insulin-dependent um, okay. diabetes, type okay. 2 diabetes. Okay, the protective effect of breastfeeding. Yes, yes. For, I mean, for, for the child yes. or the mother? Yes. Uh, the mother. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. there
1: is some very it's... interesting research on the gut biome. Yes. And that one certainly suggests that uh, breastfeeding is it produces a much healthier mix of bacteria in the gut. Yes, and that ultimately yes, is that's, likely that's, to yes, lead to less yeah. problems with weight gain and diabetes later in life. Yeah. But I'll have a look in it. But breastfeeding yeah. yeah, is able
0: to protect there. against breast cancer. Yeah, there's yeah. certainly yes. evidence Absolutely. there, and I was just wondering yeah. how current it was. Because it is it totally used well to be expected. strong evidence, but whether it's still current evidence, speaking, yeah. I don't know. You
1: know, breastfeeding is a bloody wonderful thing, so. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: thank you. As
1: we tried to say.
2: Thank you. Hi there. Um, in terms of the 5-2 Mediterranean diet, um, what's your thoughts on natural sugars such as fructose and also salt?
1: OK, so um, table sugar consists of 50% fructose, uh, 50% glucose. So um, if you have something like agave syrup, it is 65% fructose, 35% glucose. If you actually look at its breakdown in the body, uh, agave syrup is arguably worse for you than table sugar because it actually has the problem with fructose is that most other forms of sugar that you absorb, the sugar you get, for example, uh, galactose and things you get in dairy, uh, can be broken down by other parts of the body. Uh, Only your liver can break down fructose. So what happens is you have your fructose in the form of your agave or table sugar or whatever it might be, and it goes to the liver. Now, if you have only a small amount, your liver is fine. It processes it. If it is swamped, because it's just had a massive great knocking back of fizzy drink, then what happens is it lays it down as fat, and so your liver becomes fatter and fatter and fatter. So sugar is converted to fat in your liver, and this will happen for sucrose, for glucose, for whatever you call it, but it seems to be particularly bad for fructose. And
0: fructose seems to produce more inflammation in the process, of the... And unfortunately you also get fructose
1: in fruit juice, so the orange juice you have has plenty of fructose in it. Uh, An orange has it, but you're not going to eat that many oranges. Because to get that glass of orange juice, you'd have to very... It would be good exercise if nothing else. No one is going to eat eight oranges. They're just not going to do it. Plus, you get fibre. And the result is the reason for eating fruit whole is the fibre slows down the absorption of glucose, the absorption of fructose. So your body just doesn't have the same job to deal with. And that's why I really don't like juicing. Mm. You know, I just think it's much better to eat the whole thing. Uh, and that's also why we kind of banned our kids. I mean, they ignore us obviously these days, but we banned our kids from fruit juice, from fizzy drinks and all those sort of things.
0: Thank you. I'm just aware we're running out of time. A couple of minutes left. One more question. And just before that is to say that Mike will be doing a book signing in the foyer if anyone's interested. Um, and thank you for fascinating questions so far. we we'll just... Thank, Thank you I'll, I'll be really quick. so I've got four daughters uh, six, ten, thirteen, and fifteen, and I'm wondering, is there a strategy for introducing the five two diet and what, what what age do you suggest? Okay, in terms of 5 diet, certainly not while they're growing, and because, partly because we have no evidence for use. There was, um, people have said, oh, will it make them more likely to have, develop anorexia or eating disorders? And there was never, we've never seen any evidence of that, but we're very sort of cautious about going there. Um, the I Mediterranean stuff... they're style, not
1: overweight... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. The 5-2-die is best for people who kind of want to lose a bit of weight. It's also quite yes. good as a maintenance thing, 6-1. But, but broadly, I would go for a more hmm. Mediterranean style.
0: Yeah, But I worry about what you said before, that you were skinny on the outside but not healthy Indeed. on the inside. It's
1: waist measurement is probably the most critical okay. thing. Uh, unless you're going to stick them through a DEXA scan, which, again, you know, unless there's reason to do so, I wouldn't. It's uh, better it's, to it's, just to go for size. healthy eating yeah.
0: and in for, Mediterranean for teenagers. I think it's something
1: that's worth exploring, because mm. clearly there is a huge problem with childhood obesity at the moment. And uh, there's, some, there's an excellent guy called Ludwig who writes about this. He's a Boston. And he basically has been banging on about mm. fructose and all those things. And he, he's... I can't even remember his name, but Ludwig. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lustig is also another mm-hmm. great one on sugar. Uh, but broadly, you know, I'm very cautious about dealing with One thing teenagers. you
0: can do, though, is, is, is by that age, you can, you can encourage them not to snack. Mm-hmm. Because... Snacking and if they do is. snack, really, on only healthy stuff, because snacking was kind of invented by the snacking industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people just don't need to. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless they're doing massive amount of exercise. OK. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.